turn with me this morning to the book of First Thessalonians. We'll be in First Thessalonians and chapter two, looking at verses nine through twelve. First Thessalonians chapter two, looking at verses nine through twelve. And as you turn there, uh, you know there's an interesting exchange in the book of Jeremiah chapter thirty-five, and God calls a family. Uh, to come before Jeremiah. He says, Jeremiah, call this family into you and set before them some wine. And the reason it is interesting is because the forefather of this family, the forefather of these people, told them specifically, never drink wine. Don't do it. Stay away from it. And it's interesting because they actually obey what their forefather had told them. And so throughout the generations, this command has gone forth, don't drink wine. And they listened and they obeyed it and they didn't drink wine. And so God uses this family as an illustration for the people of Israel. In Jeremiah 35, 12 through 16, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction and and listen to my words, declares the Lord. The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept, and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. I've sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way, and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to serve them, and then you shall dwell in the land that I gave you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them, but this people has not obeyed me. And I bring that up because God goes on to then to declare judgment against the people of Israel, saying, Right, you're not listening to my instruction. And he says to the sons of Rechab, because you've listened to your father's instruction, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to maintain you. I'm going to keep you. And And what we see here is right that we have some people who are willing to listen to a command of their father. But here the people of Israel are refusing to listen to their heavenly father, right? Someone who has greater authority over them. And so God brings forward these sons of Rechab as an example worthy of imitation. Right? They, they are an example, and indeed God uses them as an illustration to highlight, to contrast the evil way of the Israelites. But yet for us today, there is a more worthy example to emulate, Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ. And so we come to our passage this morning, and we're going to see how we are to strive to live as Christ lived. And so let's turn to our passage. Let's look at these missionaries and see the worthy example of them as they indeed imitated Christ. In uh, verse 9 of chapter 2, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also... How holy and blameless and righteous was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And this is the word of the Lord. So we come now and remember, what is what is First Thessalonians? 
Paul is writing a letter to a church that he loves, and he's writing out of his love to them. He's writing to them because they are facing uh, persecution, hardship, difficulty, and he wants to encourage them and strengthen them to make sure that they continue. And he wants to encourage them to be uh, to live out that example that the missionaries themselves uh, showed themselves to be when they had first come. Paul, in the beginning of chapter 2, describes what the missionaries' conduct among them was like, what they acted out, how they came in one of honesty, in one of boldness, despite the persecution. Their aim was not to please themselves. Their aim was not to please men, but their aim was to please God. And so they did this in all that they did and spoke. And indeed, uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Right, And that's an expression of Paul's deep love, of these missionaries' deep love for the Thessalonians. They were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. They had a deep love, and so they wanted to be a worthy example of Christ to them. And so let us begin and see their Christ-like conduct in verses 9 and 10. Their Christ-like conduct. And he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. And so let's stop right there, right? For you remember, you know, right? He's telling them something that they witnessed uh, about the missionaries. Our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Right in, in verse 8, right before verse 9, he says, We were ready to share with you, even of our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And so now in verse 9, he's telling them, what is that sharing with them? What does sharing of their very selves look like? Well, they didn't want to be a burden to the church. And so they labored, indeed, for the benefit of the church. And what he is talking about here, what Paul is saying is, we could have been supported by you the church we could have taken support from you we could have been financially a burden to you instead he says we worked night and day we toiled we labored we worked so that the church would not have to support them and we know what was paul's uh what was paul's job what did he do what was his field of work he was a tent maker Acts 18, 1-3 tells us, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul made tents. And it is very likely that here, when he was among the Thessalonians, right, that that's probably what he did. He made tents. Uh, he was a tent maker. In Second Thessalonians, Paul actually expands upon this issue and directs it to an application for the church to learn from. So he says, our example has a purpose among you. In Second Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 12, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So that's important there, idleness. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day. 
that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we will give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that the, some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now as such persons, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So Paul here admonishes the church, right? And says, don't be idle. Don't be idle, but be busy about work. And so there's some cultural issues at play here. So let's unpack them and then tie them all together and maybe a nice, neat little package or maybe a nice, messy package if you're like me at tying or putting things in packages. But in the early church, there was often an increase in the sharing of resources among believers. You could, for instance, turn to the book of Acts and you find that part of what the early church does there in Jerusalem is they begin to sell their property and pool all the money together. And so as any had need, they could meet that need. So there was a sharing of having everything in common. And there was often a need for such benevolence because especially in this day and age, right, the government did not support people who could not work. Uh, quite the opposite. And so if someone couldn't work, if they were disabled, if, if they were um, had some kind of malady or illness that prevented them from working, the best that they could hope for was to be sitting in a uh, public place that had a lot of traffic and begged for money. And that hopefully that people would be kind enough to them that they would have enough money in order to uh, eat and do uh, the things that they needed to do. Uh, so there was a need for such benevolence. There were classes of people that could not work. There were still issues of uh, women being unable to hold property and, and to uh, be able to be in the marketplace. Although we know, uh, at least from the book of Acts, that uh, there were a couple people like Lydia. She was a seller of purple, which is a fun thing to just think about. She's a seller of purple. Uh, there was also Dorcas, which is an unfortunate name in our day and age, but Dorcas, uh, she made a lot of really nice garments, uh, and we know that the people appreciated her for that. But at any rate, there was a sharing, and so um, that's one cultural issue at play. The second thing that we need to, to know is that in the Greek world, there were often philosophers or speakers or religious persons who would go about from place to place and they would make their money. They would make their living. They would earn a living by speaking something of philosophy or religion. And so they would go from place to place and they would uh, speak. And we've actually already encountered this issue in the book of First Thessalonians with the issue of flattery. And flattery is not saying, well, you look amazing today when you look like, you know, you got hit by a train, right? That's, that's flattery. But in our day and age, right? Flattery is changing the message, changing the truth to win an audience. So, uh, there were in Paul's day and Paul says, we weren't, we didn't come to you in flattery. We did not change the message to make it more palatable. Do we have people in our day and age that flatter in such manners? Yeah, right. That they get up and they say what you want them what you want to hear in order to gain an audience. Um, something, something politicians, right? Right there. There's much the same in our own day. One example, though, from a religious perspective is uh, L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. He's actually quoted as saying, if you want to make money, start a religion. 
And so he started a religion. And they have a lot of money, just, just so you know that. Um, down in Clearwater, where I come from, is Mothership, uh, what I like to call it. It's the main campus. It's the worldwide campus of the Scientologists. And it's a very nice-looking facility, a very nice building. They have a lot of money poured through there. Um, but there's, so, so there's this kind of Greek idea, uh, and maybe this is part of what Paul is pushing against as to why they were not a burden to the church, is because they didn't want to be lumped into such persons. Uh, there's also, though, a matter of the order of creation at issue here. And we have to understand that we were created to work. Work is not the result of the fall. I think we sometimes think that, right? That if only Adam hadn't sinned, we wouldn't have to work. Uh, granted, work would be very different, but work is a part of the created order. God gave us something to do. Genesis one twenty eight, for instance, says, And God blessed them, that is, uh, male and female, man and woman, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That sounds a lot like work, doesn't it? Fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over it, over its creatures. God mandated in the Garden of Eden that we would rule and reign over the earth. He mandated that we would fill the earth and subdue it. And now we know in the fall, work was made harder. What does God say to Adam as part of the curse of sin? It's going to be difficult. You're going to go and you're going to till the earth and the earth is going to be hard packed and full of stones. And you're going to sweat and toil. And then what grows up out of the earth will be thorny. And you will, uh, right, prick yourself on it and bleed everywhere. Right? So you're going to spend sweat and blood in order to reap from the earth what would have come much easier had you not sinned. But work is what we are called to. So as Paul's admonition, his warning, and his encouragement to the Thessalonians is work. In 2 Thessalonians, it says, work as even we worked, as we toiled. The church is not a place for people to come and fill ourselves. The church is a place where we work, and we work to fill others. This does not mean, however, and notice what Paul says back in 2 Thessalonians, uh, verse 9 of that passage. It was not because we do not have that right. So what is right is he talking about? Being a burden. But to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. It does not mean that there is not a right to being a burden, but simply that Paul and his co-workers did not take it. And it does not mean, what we are not talking about here, is that those who do not work, should, should not be supported if they cannot work. All right, so let me say that again, maybe a little bit clearer. Uh, this does not mean that those who cannot work should not be supported by those who can work. 
Right? There are legitimately people who, because of disability, because of disease, because of age, cannot work. And it is up to us as a church to benevolently, right? Benevolence, that's a part of that, to support such persons. And there are seasons of life even where those who can work maybe are fired and thrown out of the job and they need support in a short period of time in order to to survive, to feed their family. And that, and that is up to us. That's incumbent upon us. Uh, and again, uh, that goes against maybe a little bit of our, the grain of culture uh, in that we're used to the government supporting those who cannot work. It's not what the scripture tells us. The scripture doesn't say, uh, give that duty to somebody else. The scripture says, you, right? We're to look after the widows and the orphans. That's a mandate for us. But again, so, so these, these broader issues at work here, uh, and let's tie these things back in. So Paul and his coworkers saw something in the Thessalonian culture that made them decide it is better for us to not burden the church, to not take financially from the church, to not be supported by the church, but rather to work hard in order to be an example to them. Maybe it was the issue of the swindlers. Maybe Thessalonica had a lot of uh, people who would come through who would just speak a message in order to get as much money as possible. Maybe it was an issue of idleness. Maybe they were a bit, a little bit like Cretans, right? Out of the book of Titus. Uh, lazy. Slow bellies. Uh, if you go King James there, right? Uh, lazy gluttons. So, so there's some issue and some reason why Paul is motivated to not burden the church. What Paul is not advocating for here is that every minister of the gospel should not be supported by the church they serve. Um, there are some people in our day who think this way. There are some people who think this way, but that is not what the scripture says, right? Even in Second Thessalonians, it says, it's our right, but we're not taking it. We're not making use of it. He tells them he could have, but he doesn't. Uh, he acted similarly, similarly uh, in Corinth when he speaks uh, as such in his letters to them in 1 Corinthians 9, 12 through 14. He says, if others share this rightful claim on you, that is to burden them financially. He says, do not we even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Again, Paul recognized something there in Corinth that said, it, it's better for us to work and support ourselves than to burden the church. Continuing on, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So he says something to the first, uh, to the Corinthians here in First Corinthians. He had a right as a minister to burden the church. But he chose not to burden them for gospel purposes. And same too in Thessalonica. And notice there in 1 Corinthians what example he gave. He said, remember the priests, right? Remember the Levites. How were the Levites supported? By the work they did in the temple. When there would come to be an offering, they received part of the sacrificial offering to eat. 
And so that is, uh, right, a, he says it's not just something that happened back then, but it's a pattern that continues into the New Testament, into the church today. Uh, his right was like the right of the priests of the Old Testament. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, though, had this Christ-like conduct among them. They served this church in whatever way that they seemed, that seemed to be best and that seemed to be godly. So that's, that's what they were striving to. He continues on in verse 10 of our passage this morning. He says, You are witnesses in God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Right? He calls them as witnesses. He says, you are witnesses. Again, right? He said, you remember how we were. You are witnesses. You know this. You know this about us. Not only that, but he says, God also. So whereas the Thessalonians might not know the motives of the heart of Paul and company, God certainly knows the motive of the heart of Paul and company. And so both these, uh, Paul calls as witnesses, you know our conduct. You know who we were. You know who we were. You know who we are. <clears throat> what does he say there? He says, first, we're holy, right? They held to God's standards. They were righteous. They held to man's standards, right? We can think of this as God's standard, man's standards, and they were blameless. There was no proof that anyone could bring against them. There's no, nobody could be raised, no witness could be raised that would say anything to the contrary, but that they followed what God said, they followed what man said, and in both ways they were blameless. They did everything in accord with Christ-like conduct. Paul is placing himself before the court of public opinion, and greater than that, the court of God's opinion, and he is saying that they pass every test. Their manner was godly. It was Christ-like. And the question must be asked of our manner. Before God and before others, are we blameless? What of your conduct? Is it Christ-like? When you consider your conduct towards God's people or towards the world at large in the context of your school, in the context of your workplace, what is your conduct like? Are you a worthy example? If people look at you, would they see evidence of Christ's work in you? Could you say the same as Paul? My conduct is holy and righteous and blameless. Do you have a worthy walk, in other words? And let's look at that, verses 11 through 12. A worthy walk. And he continues on, he says, For you know how. Again, for you know. You know us, Thessalonica. You know us, believers in Thessalonica. For you know how, like a father with his children. And let's just stop there, right? Again, he reminds them of their manner towards them. He was like a father to his children. And we'll see a little bit what that means in the context of what he's saying here in verse 12. But one commentator puts it this way. Paul intended the analogy to convey to his spiritual children both his affection and his authority. So right, he is speaking to them of his affection as a father loves a child and of his authority 
as a father has a right to speak to his child. And we may not have had a good earthly father. Maybe he was absent. Maybe he was abusive. Maybe he was, as all earthly fathers are, imperfect. But Paul is again saying, my affection towards you has been warm. Right? It's not a cold affection. It's a warm affection. And it's also one of authority. Good fathers wield authority over their children for the child's benefit. And so Paul continues, how did he act like a father with his children? Verse 12 tells us, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So what did Paul and the missionaries do, his co-workers do? They exhorted. And this first word carries with it the idea to urge someone to an action, to a right action, to an ethical action. Uh, the word in Greek carries with it the idea of comforting or coming alongside someone to help them to some end. John the Baptist preaching uh, as he baptized people is an example of exhortation in Luke chapter 3, 7 through 9. And it might surprise us how he exhorted his audience. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So that's an example of exhortation, right? What does he say? He says some hard stuff. Brood of vipers. That's a great way to begin a conversation, right? To begin a, uh, a talk. I don't think that's something that you will ever hear Joel Osteen say. Just, just a thought. Uh, because he can't even call sin, sin. So I don't think he'll start with brood of vipers. But John the Baptist here, right? He urges them. He tells them, right? He implores with them. He, he incites them. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with, in, uh, with repentance. Do that which you are called and commanded to by God. That's the exhortation. Do what you have been called and commanded to by God. The second thing he says here, right? We exhorted you. We encouraged you. And this carries with it the idea of building confidence or boldness in another person to some end. It's close in proximity to exhortation, right? It's, it's a similar idea here. Uh, but we could look, for instance, to Joshua 1, 6 through 7. God speaking here says, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. What is God doing there? Right, he's encouraging jo Joshua. What is Joshua facing? Well, he's facing entering into a promised land, a land that is filled with giants 
and fortresses and every kind of difficulty that you could imagine. Right? They were supposed to go into and conquer the promised land. And he is taking with him a people that has often been reluctant and disobedient to do that. Why is Joshua the one leading them in and not Moses? Because the people were disobedient and Moses was disobedient. Right? So Joshua has reason to be fearful and weak. And God encourages him and says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Do you think Joshua needed some encouragement? I would say, yeah, probably he needed some encouragement. How about you? Do you need some encouragement sometimes? Yes, a lot of times, more times than we admit. And and again, let's just give an example. An encouragement is not, you can do it. That's not an encouragement. Because if we could do it, we wouldn't need encouragement. right? So an encouragement is, if God has called you to this, if He has equipped you for it, He will work it in you and through you. Be strong and courageous. Who is it? Who is it that leads you and empowers you? Well, if it's the Lord God, what do you have to worry about? Right? That, that's a kind of encouragement. We point the person to God. We point the person to God. And indeed, one of the purposes of this letter, right, First Thessalonians, this is a letter to encourage the church. They needed encouragement. They were facing persecution. They needed to hear, be strong and courageous. Why? Because God is with you. God has called you. God has chosen you. God has loved you. You know these things. You've seen these things. You've witnessed these things. Be strong and courageous. Continue on in the faith. So they... Exhorted, they encouraged, and they charged them to walk in a manner worthy of God. So this idea of charge, it's this idea of witnessing or being a a testifying to something, a testimony of the truth. And so it is about the truth. It's about speaking the truth. And remember, what analogy is Paul using here? Like a father with his child. So how does a father do these three things? Well, they might exhort in this way. They might say to their children, follow the commands of God, trust in Christ Jesus alone. Right? Exhort them. They might encourage them in this way. Things are tough right now, but God will give you strength to walk in a way that honors him. They might charge them in this way. They might say to their children, God says in his word to walk in holiness and that all those who fail will be judged. So walk in holiness. And there's overlap here, right? There's shades of difference. But what was Paul's specific exhortation and encouragement and charge to the Thessalonians? Walk in a manner worthy of God. And what does that mean? Well, it's part of what Paul's been saying all along, right? Part of it is the example that the missionaries themselves gave. They gave an example of a worthy walk to them. And so it would behoove us to answer that question, what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of God? We'll look at the example of Paul and Silas and Timothy. It means to walk as a citizen 
of God's kingdom, right? That's what he ends it with. He says, who calls you into his own kingdom in glory. And so it might help us to answer the question this way. What does it look like for you to be a citizen of America? What does a citizen of America look like? And that's a little bit of a complicated question because we're a massive nation with a disparate population and a diverse population, but we can tease it out this way, perhaps. So what does a citizen of America look like? Well, there's probably some emphasis on personal freedom, right? We have some idea, some shared idea that personal freedom is paramount. There's some idea of a shared uh, vision of a future utopia to which we are working towards. Now, that comes with some caveats, because depending on your political persuasion, the what that utopia looks like is very different. For some people, it might be uh, big government coming along and giving you everything that you need. For some of us, the utopia might be, well, the government is gone and distant, and we are here in our cabin with all the guns that we could ever need in order to support a well-armed militia, right? So that idea of what does that utopia looks like varies from person to person. But here's the thing. We all share this idea that there is a future utopia to which we should work towards. And so we, uh, we elect politicians that share our vision of a utopia and we uh, expect them to bring it to fruition. Uh, there's also, so what does a citizen of America look like? There's also some uh, idea that, at least for other cultures, other countries, that we're loud and boisterous. Might we be loud and boisterous? I don't know, maybe. Uh, but, but as a uh, perception, the perception abroad is we're a loud and boisterous bunch. But maybe it would be easier to think about this in a smaller context. What does a citizen of Maysville look like? What about a citizen of Flemingsburg? What about a citizen of Tolsboro? Um, what about Cincinnati, Kentucky, Ohio, right? Even in that, as we think of a broader state, the ideas and the, the desires of a Kentuckian is different than an Ohioan. Or maybe this is a little bit easier for us to understand. How about the cultural difference between someone from the South and someone from the North? Right? So it, someone could tell where you've grown up culturally by the way you talk and how you act. Right? You're a citizen of the South. If you say things like y'all and maybe pop, right? As opposed to soda. Those kinds of those kinds of issues, right? Um, or even you could again a little bit more locally. If you're from the mountains, if you're from the Appalachian Mountains, you're going to have a certain cultural, and people will know you're a citizen of the mountains. Now, what does a citizen of the kingdom of God look like? If you're a part of the the kingdom of God, you should walk in a manner worthy of that kingdom. You should look like a kingdom citizen. You yourself should be a worthy example. We began our time by looking at the sons of Jonadab, who kept their father's commands. And we've seen how Paul and the other missionaries conducted themselves in a Christ-like manner, right? They strive to live like Christ. 
And how this example itself Paul used as an exhortation, as an encouragement, as a charge for the Thessalonians to live likewise. The example was set so that they would know what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. And the reality is that the example set by Paul and the charge that he gave to this church is the same example and the same charge which we ourselves are to follow today. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you call him your Savior, you are charged to walk in a manner worthy of him. You are called to be Christ-like in your conduct. And what this means is that there are certain demands now placed on your life and you can no longer live the way that you did before you were saved. You must live differently. You cannot live as the world around you lives. Where lying is the norm in this world, truth must be the measure of our conversations and our actions. Where sexual sexual immorality is commonplace, purity and sexual morality is to be our standard. Where there is unjust anger and hate, gentleness and love ought to motivate us. Where there is unforgiveness and the holding of grudges, you in Christ are to be quick to forgive. Where there is greed and a preoccupation on worldly goods, There is to be generosity and a storing up for yourself treasures in heaven. Who you are called to be in Christ is counter to the values of this world. And so walk worthy of the kingdom of God. Walk worthy of God as you enter into his kingdom, as you enter into his glory. Walk in holiness before him. Walk in love. Walk as Christ himself walked, for he is our example. And understand that all of this, this charge to walk in a manner worthy of God is not an attempt to earn your salvation and it is not to pay back your salvation. You cannot do either. If you are in Christ, however, you should want to please him. And what is pleasing to him is obedience and not sacrifice. And let me state this reality again so as not to be misunderstood. You cannot earn your salvation. You add nothing to it. If you are saved, it is only by God's grace. And if you are saved, you should have a motivation to please Christ. You should want to please Him. Love motivates us to serve God as we ought. For some of you, you need to realize this. You can't earn your salvation. You're never going to do good enough. Because of the sinfulness of your own flesh, you cannot. For some of you, you need to realize that as it stands, you will never enter the kingdom of God or His glory. You are dead, and yes, you may now breathe, but in your spirit, you are dead. You are dead in your sins, in all the evils that you commit, that you engage in. You are dead in your spirit, and you are not going to make yourself alive. Dead people don't come back alive by themselves. 
But there is one who offers life. Jesus Christ has come to give life, abundant life, spiritual life, eternal life. The charge to you this morning, the call that you need to heed is this. Confess your sins, repent, turn from them, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, this is what Paul, uh, sorry, Peter says in one of his early sermons in the book of Acts, in Acts 3, 19 through 21, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Your sins can be blotted out. You can have forgiveness before God for the evil that lies within you. He has made possible that through the first coming of Christ. But know this, if you do not repent, if you remain in your sin, if you do not seek God's forgiveness, when you die or when Christ comes again a second time, you will not have the times of refreshing as Peter puts it. No, instead, you will be cast into the fires of hell. You will suffer under the eternal punishment for your sins. You will die and be outside of the grace of God forever. So repent. Turn to God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once you do, then walk in a manner worthy of God. And don't get that order wrong. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, We are grateful for your grace towards us in Christ. And Father, we confess that our lives may not look as a worthy example to others. Father, forgive us for our sinfulness. Forgive us for not living up to your standard. Forgive us for not even striving to live up to your standard. Not that it saves us, not that it earns us anything. But Father, because if we love you, we should want to obey your commands. If we love you, we'll prove it by the obedience to your commands. We will want to, out of an overflow of our love for you, out of your the overflow that you have loved us with, want to walk in a manner worthy. Father, forgive us for our failings in this manner and help us to strive to live in a way that the world around us might recognize God, that we would live in a way that the world may know that there is something different about us. And Father, that you would give us boldness to declare the truth, to speak the truth of Jesus Christ. Father, for those who do not know you, I pray that your spirit might even now be at work in them. Father, that they would confess their sins, that they would turn from them, and that they would live in accord with your word. Oh, Father God, do this work to the praise of your glory for the good of your people. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.